2: From the Abraham Lincoln Radio Studio at the George Washington Broadcast Center. Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show.
3: I personally pushed Israeli leaders to avoid civilian casualties and to shun irresponsible rhetoric and to prevent violence by settlers in the West Bank. So that's
0: the old one. Can we hear the new one, which is clip 52 of uh, Secretary of Defense Austin? Because I have a comment about this.
3: We will not tolerate attacks on American personnel. And so these attacks must stop. And until they do, we will do what we need to do to protect our troops. Well, you haven't yet. And to impose costs on those who attack them.
4: Um, May he, he, was, uh, he was practically Kamala Harris there for a second. We'll do what we need to do and we will do it.
0: Yeah, so you know, don't. So I was thinking about this yesterday. We're going to talk to Jeff McCaslin, one of our favorite military analysts here at the bottom of this here hour on uh well, first the ground war starting in Israel. Uh but the fact that all these attacks on us, shooting missiles at our ships, attacks on our bases, our troops, with barely any response. Even Leon Panetta, sec def under Obama, said over the weekend, Yeah, we need to we need to push back harder. Let him to know you can't do this. I mean, so Biden's way out there on the passive end of this. And I think Lloyd Austin, I was thinking about this yesterday. I know I thought about this when I heard um our uh it was either our Secretary of State or our security guy, because they both have such a weedy kind of this kind of voice and i mean you know i hate to be a jerk and judge them on that but it makes their soft rhetoric come off as even softer and i think lloyd austin is benefiting from the fact that he's the size of thor and has (laughs) that voice because if you took his words and put them in jake sullivan's mouth they better stop doing that. We're just warning them that if they continue to do that, we'll continue to tell them to stop. I mean, you know, it's just, he's got a a really low voice and he's a giant hulking
4: man, but he's saying the same passive stuff. Let's play that clip again, Michael, and let me set it up this way. There have now been over 75 attacks already with a very minor response. We will not tolerate attacks on
3: American personnel. And so these attacks must stop. And until they do, we will do what we need to do to protect our troops. All right, and that's to impose but cost, So, he, don't so he
4: think? after 75-plus attacks, these attacks must stop, says Iran and its proxies.
0: No. You put those words in Kamala Harris's mouth or Jake Sullivan's mouth or Anthony
4: Blinken's mouth, and I would no. mock it. But we would be mocking it roundly. You okay. don't mock yeah. it as
0: much because it's a giant guy with a low voice, which is a silly way to approach things. His first sentence is bull crap. We will not tolerate that. You are by definition tolerating it, we. We are by definition tolerating it. If it happens 70 times, I mean, that's like saying to your kid on day 10 of them, you know, ignoring you, I'm not going to put up with that. Well, clearly you I am putting up with it. I've yeah, yeah. S- I've sent the message that I will put up with it. So again, he gets the benefit of the doubt of being a hulking man with a low voice. So he sounds like he's being tough, but we ain't. We will not put up with those attacks. Yeah, apparently we will. Yeah.
4: Yeah, that is really really frustrating. Uh, we no longer have time to do what we were going to do here. So I'm g- what can we uh, just quickly uh, on our feet, uh, not that, could do that, probably not that. Oh, I love this. Researchers are saying taking selfies is now a public health problem after a spate of deaths at various beautiful spots on Earth. People posing for selfies at on the rim of volcanoes, at the edge of cliffs, at the top of waterfalls, etc. Surely
0: I'm not supposed to be concerned about this. I mean, this seems like Charles Darwin... Uh, taking out his jacket and his uh, notepad and getting to work, to me.
4: No, well, yeah, I I agree with you, but academics are saying that uh, it is a, quote, public health problem. No, it's not. They found nearly 400 uh, selfie-related deaths over the 13 years of their study period, including 77 in the U.S. How many? Uh, 400.
0: Over how many years? 13 years. And that's worldwide or in the United States? Uh, Worldwide.
4: So this is double stupid.
0: <laughs> okay, that's, that's not, I, I'll bet as many people were crushed by vending machines trying to get their <laughs> coke out because it didn't fall down.
4: Jack, you might be surprised to learn that most likely to be killed taking safety, uh, selfies were female tourists in their early 20s. No way. Oh. I would not have guessed that. It's the only guess I would have had. <sighs> Researchers said the public must be made aware of the risks posed by selfies with an estimated 92 million snapped globally every day. And you got 400 people croaking over the course of 13 years. Please. And then they they show a bunch of pictures of people who uh, ended up uh, snuffed of selfies, self-snuffed, if you will. Uh, Previous research has recommended no selfie zones, barriers, and signage as ways to prevent selfie incidents. Hey, get out of my way. I'm Charles Darwin. (laughs)
0: I'll bet 400 people have choked on a Rubik's Cube in that amount of time. I mean, that's that's not very many people worldwide.
4: A rarity indeed, Jack. You know what they don't get into? This is all slips and falls and... and, and, uh, Falling off a cliff is the big one. Volcanoes and that sort of thing. Uh, what they don't get into, I don't think, is uh, is uh, animal gorings. Because mm, that's, that's my favorite subcategory. <laughs> when somebody gets a, hey, I'm going to get like five feet from this giant buffalo to take a selfie. This will just explode on my gram. <laughs> then the ba- buffalo says, these freaking morons. There's only, w- son, he says to his little buffalo boy, there's only one way to stop this, son. I'm going to have to gore them.
0: Right, so I'm going to stand on the edge of this here volcano, get a picture of me as the sun sets, living my best life, I'll caption it, and then you fall in. Don't!
4: Right. Here I am in a designer outfit right at the edge of this boiling hot spring. It's 500 degrees. Now let me, the light is not quite, let me turn a little. Ah! I wonder if the, the, the excitement
0: of this will wear out. If people will get, okay, I've seen... I've seen all my friends with amazing sunsets in various parts of the world. I just don't need to see that anymore. Will that go
4: away at some point? What an interesting question. I have another one for you. This might be the most important or least important thing ever said on the show. There's an ad for, I think it's an Android uh, phone, camera phone, computer thing. Why do we call them phones? That's like the 11th use of the thing in order of importance, a smartphone. But anyway, it's the ad, I think everybody's probably seen it, where you can so alter photos that if... You know, there's six of you, and two of you are looking the wrong way. You just take other pictures and superimpose them on your heads. Or there's the kid who jumps six inches in the air, and he changes the photo so it looks like he's jumped six feet in the air, and he's on a skateboard, and it's at sunset, and the rest of it. And I watched that ad thinking, this is bizarre.
0: Yeah, that's the new Google phone, isn't it? It's really
4: amazing. Yeah.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've got some friends who use that. The stuff you can do with pictures is really cool.
4: But, your but point so now is, you're you know, sending to friends or posting pictures of things that have never occurred to make yourself look cooler.
0: Yeah, that's kinda wrong. I, I don't that's not healthy. Surely that's gonna run its course. I mean, if you sent me a picture every day with various rock stars that
4: you haven't actually met. I think I'd have to block Or there I am punching a great white shark in the face or something like that. Oh, right. I think a I'd, while, have to, yeah. I'd have to block you at some point. <laughs> You're right. This might be self-regulated. <laughs> so the New York Times wants us to believe that shoplifting is not on the rise. Funny. We have the crappy, idiotic journalism and some commentary about it. Plus, the Wall Street Journal really intriguing um, about violent crime and uh, how the trend can be allegedly that violent crime is dropping, but people perceive it to be rising. I found that interesting.
0: Oh, cool. Try not to fall into a volcano, and
1: we'll be right back.
2: The Armstrong
4: and Getty Show. Wow, this is this is really bad timing. Just as we're coming back, my microphone falls off the stand. So now I've got to hold it like I'm a lounge singer. <laughs> well,
0: <sighs>
4: I think you'll all remember this one. Raindrops keep falling on me. <laughs> applause there at the Holland. Right. So, uh, I found this just utterly unbelievable. We were chatting. You'd open with raindrops keep falling on your head? I don't know if I would open with it. Uh, no, that was kind of mid-show. Okay. That was a uh, second set opener. You know, really get them on their feet. Uh, (laughs) The three drunks at the Holiday Inn bar. Uh, We were doing a a little local segment for our uh, home base station and uh, discussing how so many states in the West resent all the Californians moving there. And I made the point that, um, you know, a lot of people move from blue states to red states for a better quality of life, but they don't connect in their heads that the reason they were driven away from the blue states is policy crime and high taxes and, and crumbling infrastructure and bums and junkies in the streets and the rest of it is not it's not the weather. It did not befall you because of the forces of nature. It's policy for God's sake. Then this uh, the, the New York Times the other day with their um, <clears throat> they published a, a new sheet and a column every day called The Morning. And uh, the topic a couple of days ago was viral exaggerations. Is the US in the middle of a shoplifting wave? Target and other retail chains have warned of widespread theft. News outlets have amplified the story. On social media, people have posted videos of thieves looting stores. But the increase in shoplifting appears to be limited to a few cities rather than being truly national. And they make the point that, no, there's not really a rise in shoplifting. I mean, New York gets so much attention. And, yes, way up in New York, blah, blah, blah. and, And they explain it in a variety of ways. Um, And their blind spot is just shocking and hilarious to me. Well, it's shocking but unsurprising. Let me get into their excuses for why people perceive there to be a lot more retail theft. Events in New York tend to receive outside scrutiny. Yes. Yes. Uh, another city where property crime, crime has written, uh, risen is Washington, D.C., where many journalists and politicians also live. Okay, Videos of extreme but rare crimes can go viral today. The flash mobs, the looting in San Francisco. What
0: else do Washington, D.C., New York, and San Francisco have in common besides Uh-oh. getting
4: a lot of attention? I'm sorry, I can't hear you. Um, moving along, conservative media have promoted these videos as evidence of disorder in liberal cities and under mm-hmm. President Biden.
0: Because it is. Evidence of that?
4: They're locking up my (laughs) toothpaste. That's
0: right, Uh, Trevor. You
4: know, Al, we're going to get to that. Retailers have an interest in spreading the shoplifting narratives because it can suggest that disappointing profits are beyond their control. Oh, my God. What? Oh, my God. And if you thought they're stretching there, inflation may play a role too. Even if retail theft is not up, retailers might care more about it now because high prices. Right. Yeah, that's it. Right. They didn't yeah. care if you stole all the stuff
0: off the shelf back before inflation. What are you talking about? <laughs>
4: <laughs> and the rise. The, that's the dumbest one yet. And finally, the rise in murder, car theft, and some other crimes makes shoplifting seem like part of a larger story, even if it isn't in most cities. All right, so in case maybe you just woke up, maybe you're an idiot, maybe you're a progressive. Number one, all of the big rises are happening in blue cities, which have decriminalized crime, or indeed blue states like Cal Unicornia, which has carried that experiment to a statewide level with horrific, disastrous results. Number two. It had been a while since I'd been to the Greens near the radio ranch, but I was in it the other day. <clears throat> Needed a new beard trimmer, and I thought, why, I'll just support a local business. And uh, and uh, I was shocked, because it's more urban than where I live. Everything is locked up. Sure. Everything worth more than $2 is behind lock and key, and the poor exasperated clerk lady... Uh, sighed and rolled her eyes when I said I would like to give you money for some of your goods oh all right I'll be right there now can anybody now you'll probably need to be a PhD in criminology can anybody think why there's less theft now at that Walgreens anybody anybody oh good lord the New York Times is supposed to be like the best and brightest of our journalists And they can't recognize those two things? So because it's not
0: happening in Oklahoma City the way it's happening in San Francisco, it's being overstated as opposed to... The
4: narrative is false, Jack.
0: As opposed to why in San Francisco did they have to close all the
4: Walgreens? That's pretty interesting. (laughs) You'd think... (laughs) Unbelievable. And then this from the Wall Street Journal, which I found uh, quite interesting and no surprise that the more conservative publication is much more realistic. The headline is violent crime is down. Here's why more people feel victimized. And they mentioned that in October, the FBI's annual report showed violent crime in 2022 fell to its relatively low pre pandemic level. Yet in November, Gallup reported that a record high 63% of U.S. adults said, quote, the crime situation in the U.S. is extremely or very serious. This seems to suggest that either the crime data is wrong or people are unrealistically negative. There is another possibility. More people are experiencing crime, but it's not captured in FBI measures. And they go into the system of reporting crime and how highly imperfect it is in terms of local agencies reporting it to the FBI. And the vast, vast, vast majority of of, uh, violent crime reports are with local authorities. So that's a really serious problem. Um, And then they get into the fact that uh, another caveat is that the violent crime rate is largely driven by aggravated assaults and robberies, which are far more numerous than homicides. Homicides naturally are a major concern, and the homicide rate abruptly soared in 2020 amid the pandemic. And 2022 was still 43% higher than 2014. So, though it has declined somewhat post-pandemic, it's still horrifically high. Um, Let me scroll down. Uh, An even more important caveat is that violent crimes reported to the police almost certainly undercount actual crimes experienced by people and trends in the two can diverge. And this is getting back to the George Soros funded prosecutors. More and more people, as they describe in the Wall Street Journal, feel that if somebody punches them in the face and takes something from them, it's not worth calling the cops. There will be no repercussions from the criminal, and if it's a local street tough that might take a little revenge for you getting them in trouble with the law, it's not worth it. It's absolutely not worth it. Cops are making fewer arrests because there are fewer prosecutions. Why would you bother? And citizens seeing that, don't bother reporting them. There is a horrific underreporting now of violent crime because of the lack of justice in the criminal justice system.
0: So how long are we going to let Iran attack us before we punch them in the nose? Decent question. We're going to talk to one of our favorite military analysts about that and the ground war in Israel coming up.
4: You know, it's of a theme. How long will we put up with bad people doing bad things and not respond out of some misplaced sense of, I don't know, Armstrong
1: and Getty?
2: The Armstrong and
3: Getty Show. I would be much more aggressive about going after those that attack our U.S. forces. Do you think to date that our response has been too soft? I think, I think it's been a little bit too selective. I mean, we hit some ammo dumps, we hit some other targets. I want to go after those who are firing missiles at our troops. And make sure they understand that when they fire a missile, they're going to die.
0: Like I said yesterday, I feel like Leon Panetta, lifetime Democrat, saying that while you've got a sitting U.S. Democrat president at war, more or less, is pretty strong language. He's calling out Joe Biden's administration and saying, how come we're not hitting them back harder? That's former Secretary of Defense under Obama, Leon Panetta.
4: That, among several topics, we'd like to discuss with Jeff McCausland, CBS News military consultant. Jeff, how are you, sir?
3: Very well, guys. And happy holidays.
4: Excellent. Uh, any and same to you and, and yours. Uh, any thoughts on uh, Leon Panetta's uh, statement? There, it seems pretty pointed to us.
3: Well, yeah, I happen to totally agree with Leon Panetta, quite frankly, and concern me that our news coverage seems to have primarily focused on what's going on in the Gaza Strip, which is horrific. There's no two questions about it. But at the same time, U.S. forces in Syria and Iraq have been struck 76 times. Uh, in one case, there was a report that an explosive laden drone hit a U.S. barracks, and I think it was near Erbil. Uh, luckily, that particular bomb did not detonate, but that could have been devastating. And yes, we have done some airstrikes, and yes, we've done some C-130 gunship strikes in return, but we need to do something to, to get this to come to uh, to a halt and do so as quickly as possible. Otherwise, we all need to realize if there was a catastrophic event in which a number of US soldiers were killed or injured, well, then we would see escalation going vertical uh, very, very rapidly. And also, we need to be concerned about the increasing uh, violence down the Red Sea, where in the last few days, Houthi rebels have attacked three commercial ships. The USS Carney, a destroyer, was involved in providing them assistance and also shooting down a number of drones and as well as intercepted several missiles that the Houthis have fired towards Israel.
0: Yeah, the uh, Politico has an article with a, a DOD official speaking anonymously. You'd be hard-pressed to find another time that U.S. ships have been this challenged in the region. So this is as hot as it's ever been. I, you probably, as a military guy, not, uh, not wanting to criticize uh, the Secretary of Defense, but we played a clip of, of Lloyd Austin a little bit earlier where he said, we will not tolerate these kind of attacks. Well, I think by definition we are tolerating these kind of attacks,
3: aren't we? Well, when you get to 76, it sort to suggest to me that you're kind of tolerating those attacks. <laughs> and we also need to be very clear with the American public, and that is these roughly 3,400 soldiers that are in Iraq and Syria, for example, about 900 in Syria, about 2,500 yeah, in Iraq. They are there, they has not, their mission has nothing whatsoever to do with the ongoing hostilities in Gaza. They are there still conducting counter ISIS operations uh, to defeat the last elements of ISIS. In the case of the U.S. forces in Iraq, oh, by the way, they are there at the invitation of the Iraqi government. So I think the other thing we need to do is to get pretty, pretty hard with the Iraqi government and say, look, if you'd like our forces in your country to provide assistance in defeating ISIS, which clearly threatens the sovereignty of your nation, then your forces as well, your forces as well need to be heavily involved in ensuring these kind of attacks on Americans that are helping to defend you do not occur.
4: Getting back to uh, the, uh, the attacks on both commercial and military ships in the Gulf, uh, is there any doubt in your mind that these so-called Houthi attacks are at the behest of the Iranians?
3: Well, there's no doubt that the Iranians have provided military assistance to the Houthis. There's no doubt in many ways the Houthis are a proxy of Iran. And That being said, are they up there actually orchestrating this particular individual attack? And that I would have some doubt. My guess is the Iranians are, are clearly aware of what's going on. They certainly may have encouraged it. They may not be involved in the civic planning of a particular ind- individual attack. But we also know that elements of the uh, Iranian uh, Revolutionary Guard uh, leadership has visited uh, Iraq in the last few days and I always wonder when, you, when we talk about Iran is Iran doing this Iran doing that <clears throat> this is a bifurcated leadership in that you have the army and the government of Iran that's one thing then you have the Revolutionary Guards the Kuds Force doing their doing something else and several times we've seen over the last several years the right hand and the left hand may not know what the other one's doing Right, fair enough. I'm not the
4: expert on asymmetrical warfare that you are, but I find myself searching for a reason the Houthis, given, you know, what they are and what they're fighting for, would think, hey, I know what we ought to do. Let's provoke the United States. I can't imagine they would do that on their own.
3: That's exactly right. And also, even for the Iranians, I'm a little unsure of what the Iranians think they are accomplishing by encouraging these Shiite militia groups to to, uh, strike U.S. forces. You know, do they assume that by doing so, eventually, we're just going to immediately evacuate and leave the region with a table between our legs? That's not going to happen. Um, So in doing what they're doing right now, they really risk really dramatic escalation. And that's why across the entire region, we need to be concerned about that. As this fighting has resumed, yes, we've seen the attacks by the Houthis. Yes, we've seen the attacks by uh, forces in Iraq and Syria. We've also seen a rapid increase in violence on the West Bank. About 250 Palestinians have been killed on the West Bank since this war began in conflict with uh, Israeli defense forces and settlers. And, oh, by the way, Hezbollah in southern Lebanon has recommenced rocket and artillery strikes uh, into northern Israel. So the possibility that this war could rapidly escalate and become a more regional war still is out there, and the longer this goes on, that probability, I fear, raises
0: Well, I've followed some of these attacks. I mean, Wall Street Journal had a good article about one of them where uh, I guess it was a drone and a bomb that lodged in the ceiling of one of our barracks and it didn't go off. Well, if it had, we'd be at war with Iran, wouldn't we?
3: Pretty likely if you had a significant number of U.S. casualties, there's no two ways about it. Um, That's why I think it's even more important that we respond in concert with our Iraqi uh, allies, Because we had a couple of cases where the Iraqis actually have complained when we did respond, even in a limited fashion, that we were doing so absent their knowledge and therefore we were in some ways violating their sovereignty. Well, I kind of get that. But on the other hand, the Iraqi government has a full responsibility to protect our forces since they are in their country, as I said before, hoping to defend that sovereignty.
4: CBS News military consultant Jeff McCausland on the line. Jeff, if we can p- uh, pivot to uh, Gaza for a minute, I'm, you know, I see virtually every single headline on the the fighting includes, for instance, the New York Times. Uh, Israeli forces enter southern Gaza's largest city as fear grows for civilians. I mean, every headline includes the concern about civilian deaths, and certainly only a monster would would like civilian deaths, but. To what extent does Israel have options, given the shape of the battlefield and the nature of the enemy, if you accept that their goal is righteous, and that's to wipe out Hamas?
3: Well, I think they have some options. I mean, Tom Friedman, I thought in an article in the Times a few days ago, said maybe what Israel ought to do is just for the moment declare a ceasefire. We will declare a ceasefire, and we'll continue that ceasefire when you release all of the hostages, number one and you announce that you're going to surrender and, in fact, dismantle Hamas. Okay, and then that'll be the end of the war. And that puts the uh, onus, if you could say, diplomatically or politically, on Hamas, okay? You want this to continue after all this has happened, after all these civilians, unfortunately, have been killed in the hostilities. That's one thing you could do. The second thing I think the Israelis could do would be take a page out of our playbook back during the surge, and that is if you talk to folks that were involved in that, What we tried to do was focus our efforts militarily on a laser effort to take out the leadership of the al-Qaeda and the other groups we were opposing. But we had a political effort whereby we were trying to identify an Iraqi partner, which we kind of did, that we could then create a political end state and, if you will, peel the population away from the terrorist group. I fear too oftentimes we talk about Palestinians and Hamas as interchangeable nouns. Well, they're certainly not. So to find that political partner, whether it's a a pan-Arab group, whether it's the U.N., whether it's the Palestinian Authority, if they could be resurrected, that you could show as your political partner to shape an end-state that might offer the Palestinian people a better future, and in doing so, drive a wedge between them and the terrorist group Hamas.
0: So before we get off the phone with you, I want to nail this down so I understand your thinking on it. So in the early 80s, as you know, we had hundreds of Marines killed in a in a terrorist attack there in Lebanon, and we and, and Reagan said, "Okay, we're out of there." You don't think that would happen? You don't think that would happen if there were a whole bunch of soldiers killed in Iraq or Syria or wherever? You don't think we would pull out?
3: Well, never say never. I mean, we certainly did that under Reagan. We certainly did that in Somalia after Black Hawk Down in the Clinton administration. So there is some precedent. That being said, in those particular cases, I think you have to also step back and say, why were those forces there? And, uh, and by the time the Marines had that terrible tragedy, they had interviewed a young Marine corporal, and, a, and he asked somebody, what is our what is our mission here in this ongoing civil war in, in, in Lebanon provi- outside of providing targets for Syrian artillery? What, what are we doing here? And so the real question, what was the mission uh, came to the forefront? Same in Somalia. I think the mission in Iraq, which you would examine against, you know, holding ISIS, trying to help uh, continue to establish uh, Iraq on a more firm firm footing, is a substantially greater mission than we faced in those days. And also the loss of prestige on the part of the United States pulling out and therefore allowing the Iranians to declare a tremendous victory. Gee whiz, I would certainly hope we wouldn't do that in that regard and give them that kind of victory. CBS News military
4: consultant Dr. Jeff McCausland. Jeff, always enlightening. Thanks a million.
3: Take care, guys.
0: Okay, well, Thanks. that's that's you know often, if not mostly, a political decision as opposed to a military uh, decision. And sure. how many Americans? Up but ninety percent of Americans don't even know we have troops fighting Al Qaeda in Syria or Iraq or trying to help the Iraqi government. And if we had a whole, if we had was it what was it like almost three hundred Marines killed there in Lebanon? If we had three hundred Marines killed you know, or special forces or whoever in Iraq. I think most people's reaction would be, we have 300 Marines in Iraq. Why? why?"
4: Right. Yeah, I think you're right. And uh, I I wish, you know, we were geared up to do, you know, a two-hour podcast with Jeff because uh, his point about the Tom Friedman column and the alternate Israeli strategy where you – uh you know you you just laser focus on the leadership you can't confuse palestinians with uh, hamas and all the things he said i just i think you're more likely to find a baptist church in the gaza strip than good faith who are you going to identify as your partners going forward i've seen the poll numbers in support of hamas now that might when things settle down that might trickle downward um in times of conflict yeah there's going to be more support for the guys with guns um I just don't know. Oh, and the final point on that is Hamas spent two years pretending to be uninterested in slaughtering Jews, slaughtering Israelis. And then they went ahead and did it. So saying, Hamas, you got to disavow fighting and lay down your arms and surrender. And Hamas would say, yeah, 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 we surrender. Here's all our guns, every single one of them. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that's an option. Well, almost completely
0: separate from that conversation is this whole thing of Iran attacking us 70 times. Right. Oh, yeah.
4: Yeah. And like he said, we will not tolerate this, Jack, (sighs) said the sick deaf.
0: That's embarrassing. Man, better to say nothing than say that. That's embarrassing.
4: Yeah, Uh, I tell you what, after my wife's 57th affair, I told her, I'm not putting up with this crap. I will not tolerate this. Come on. Right. And McCausland there
0: said, if that bomb had gone off as it was intended to do, we might be at war with Iran right now. We probably would be. How is this, like, story flying under the radar? Yeah. Or even if it's flying under the radar with the American people, how's it flying under the radar with the president and the SecDef? If that had gone off, that was their point, was to kill a whole bunch of American service people, and it just accidentally didn't. She might as well act like it did.
4: Wow. What? got a great email on that topic. Uh, I don't think we really have time for it right now. But, what uh, weird
0: times we're living in.
4: Good lord. There are those are who weird. believe that. And they're getting weird fast. Well, that's true. Um, there are those who believe that the Biden administration's uh, uh, infatuation with the idea of cutting some big historic deal with Iran uh, lives on. Can't. I know. They're insane. But the way people cling to their policy preconceptions in Washington and in the State Department has amazed me throughout my life. They can be confronted with big, giant, 800-pound gorillas of reality and pretend they're not there. Yeah.
0: Uh, we got some interesting texts about your segment from before about uh, crime and shoplifting and all that sort of stuff that's pretty interesting. Oh, and we've got some unbelievable stats on that topic, too. Okay, bunch of stuff on the way. Stay with us.
1: The Armstrong and Getty Show. You guys see this on Saturday night at Madison Square Garden. KISS played their final concert and unveiled new digital avatars of the band that will continue to tour. That's
0: pretty much what the White House is going to do with Biden during next year's campaign. Whoa! Come on, man. Come on, Jack. Not a joke. So we, we don't have time to reset everything Joe talked about in the uh, second segment of this hour. Get the podcast Armstrong and Getty on demand about crime and reporting and all that sort of stuff. We got this tech, the text that's interesting. I'm an officer with the local police, and one other thing that goes to the crime stats is that some people have this tremendous guilt complex if they report an assault that is, a, that is uh, done by a minority or a homeless person that they don't want to get them in trouble so they will not report it. They'll call the police, and then once we get there uh, and everything stops, they don't want to do anything about it.
4: And this happens a lot. That's interesting. The woke crowd. Wow. Wow. You commit a violent crime against me and mine. I don't give a single S what you look like.
0: Right, or what your circumstances are.
4: Yeah, we're talking about a couple of things. The New York Times idiotic and hilariously blind argument that shoplifting isn't really on the rise. I mean, it's just it's a farce. If you missed it, listen to the podcast earlier in hour three of the show. Uh, And then the Wall Street Journal reporting that uh, violent crime, some violent crime stats seem to be down. But if you ask Americans, they're convinced it's up. Well, it's because it is up. The September National Crime Victimization Survey showed that only about 40% of violent crimes were reported to the cops in 2022. 40%! That's incredible. But the number of people who said they were a victim of violent crime rose... I'm sorry, I should present it like this. The number of people who said they were a victim of violent crime rose 42% from 2021 but only 29% more reported crimes to the police. So reported violent crimes and actual incidents of violence crime, violent crimes can be vastly different, and those trends can move in opposite directions. That's an interesting way
0: to measure it. Very clever.
4: Yeah, yeah. Um, so and then they a, go so, into so, the... So it's, yeah, a, go go ahead. it's a combination
0: of things. It's what you were talking about earlier of the... There's no point in reporting it. I mean, if I got my car broken, if I went down right now and my car window's broken, I'm not calling the police. What the hell's the point? And then no. and then you combine it with this other thing that if for some people, if it's a homeless person or a minority or something like that, you won't report it because you feel bad, I guess.
4: You people feel people like, are out of your blanket minds. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and and then they make the point that um, many non-violent crimes are incredibly disruptive to people. Burglary, vandalism, car theft, what have you. And so, yeah, if my house gets burgled and my car gets stolen, I'm going to have a perception that crime is on the rise. Yeah, Mm -hmm. because it is, and I might... Well, I was going to say I might assume that violent crime is on the rise, too, although it, it is. It absolutely is. But because, again, of the pullback in the police, the Ferguson effect slash the George Floyd paranoia, and your woke prosecutors in the most densely populated parts of the country, the under-reporting, under-arresting and under-prosecution of violent criminals is absolutely going to distort the statistics, yeah. Everybody's just accepted being a victim of, the, of civilization going away.
0: Either on purpose or not, the idea of looking at national crime statistics and ignoring policy in certain cities and what it has done, is, uh, that's, uh, that's interesting.
4: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Let's compare Columbia, South Carolina with the District of Columbia, Let's uh, let's compare, you know, San Francisco to you know the, whatever some city in in uh, Nebraska. Uh, you're going to see some really different trends. Well, that's because who wants to talk about those that. people?
0: Don't believe policy has anything to do with crime.
4: That's correct. Which is borderline mental illness. <laughs> if you can't comprehend reality or recognize it, that's mental illness.
0: We do a lot of segments, four hours worth every day. If you miss one, get the podcast, get the feed, subscribe. Armstrong and Getty on demand.
2: Armstrong and Getty. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Mini Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on Season 3 of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers.
1: If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty, Sports Scandals.